Ephesians and chapter 1. Uh, the Bible says, um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then today's text is verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I'll read that again. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. As you see from what is on the screens, the title of my sermon is In Praise of God the Father. In Praise of God the Father. Well, what we're going through basically is a celebration of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as I've said before a few times, the unsearchable word does not mean you cannot search it is that you cannot exhaust in terms of your own search. The depth is infinite. The height is infinite. The breadth and length is infinite. And therefore, if we are truly appreciating what God has done in bringing us to salvation, the sense of awe or the phrase wow should be very easily available at the tip of our tongues. And what the Apostle Paul has done in this lengthy section, one sentence from verse 3 all the way to verse 14, is to divide what God has done in saving us into three distinct places. There is what the Father has done, what the Son has done, and what the Spirit has done. And you can well understand that he spends most of his time on what the Son has done in order to save us. But even in beginning with the Father, it, it comes as a rebuke to us. Because often we, we don't think much about what God the Father has done in order to save us. Apart from he sent his Son, he gave his Son. And what the Apostle Paul has done here is to show us that, in fact, the Father has blessed us with every conceivable spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father has done it. And we've seen that he has elected us and he has predestined us. Going back before eternity, rather before the foundation of the world, he chose us as individuals that would be the objects of his salvation. And then he predetermined our end, 
that we would be adopted as his sons. We would benefit completely in all that belongs to him. Already you can begin to sense that that is unsearchable. It is inexhaustible because God is the one who owns all things. Now today, we're noticing as Paul wraps up the section under the Father that he does so with a note of praise. Now, that's the way he began anyway when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, what we're saying there is, May God the Father be praised. Hallelujah is the way in which he began. Praise be to God. And he is ending this section on the Father basically on the same note, praise be to God. And I just want us to spend our time this morning reflecting on that aspect, what it is that he says by way of detail there. First of all, I think it must be underscored as a given that when we meditate upon God's election and predestination of us, it must result in praise to God. And that's what he's essentially saying when he's saying to the praise, in verse 6 there, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, in a sense, we are praising his glorious grace. But it's important for us not to miss the fact that what we are actually doing is praising him because of his glorious grace. That's really what is happening here. So if I was to fit in a few extra words to help us appreciate what he's saying, it is to the praise of God the Father for his glorious grace. Now let me try and illustrate that and you'll understand what I mean. If I was to accuse you of praising um, somebody's generosity, I said to you, you know, you are always praising this person's generosity. I'm sure you will recognize that it's, what has irked me is not so much that you, you speak about the generosity, but you speak about this person's generosity. And it is that you are drawing our attention to the person. And it's because of his generosity that you are drawing our attention to him. Or if we could use an example of football, if I was to say to, to him, you are, rather to you, you are always praising uh, John's uh, football control or his control of the ball. Again, yes, what we're thinking about is the way in which he can sort of keep the ball in the air for about one hour and is, you know, it's not touching the ground and there's no sweat. He's just doing it as if he's eating in shimmer. But ultimately, it's not that. It's him that we are praising. So let's not lose 
sight of this reality that although the words are saying, and we'll come to that in a moment, to the praise of his glorious grace, it is the his that we are thinking about. This particular person, this particular being that we are indeed praising because of his uh, election and predestination. And friends, we often miss that, don't we? Because often when you find believers discussing election and predestination, you find that there's controversy there, that the place is hot, there is name-calling, you know, Calvinist, Arminian, and so on. And by the time the whole event is over, certainly it's not worship that's going to result from that. It's definitely not praise the Lord, hallelujah. It's almost, you know, you're a very stupid kind of thing that results from it. And that's wrong. What we are learning here is that it ought to be to the praise of God the Father that he chose us and he predetermined our end. And I think one of the reasons we, we tend to get caught up in this is because of this theme of thinking, it's not fair. And as I said to you last time when we were looking at this, it's because we, we, we tend to view salvation apart from total depravity, what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against us. When that happened, we died. We died spiritually. And dead people don't choose. They're dead. Somebody who is life-giving must come to them and infuse them with life, as we will later on go on to see. But more than that, it's not just that we are dead. We are rebellious. We, we rebelled. We don't want him. It's our very nature. We don't want him. And in our fallen state, if it was in our power, we would kill him. We'd get rid of God so that we can enjoy ourselves and enjoy sin. But he reached out. He chose. He reached out to us. He saved us. And that definitely ought to overwhelm us with a sense of gratitude. I mean, if a wealthy king or chief who has power to destroy a particular tribe, and that tribe has really been all out to bring his own kingdom and domain or, or, or chiefdomship down to, to the ground, um, but because he's wealthy and he's powerful, He's still maintained his rule. If when he subdues them, he goes in and chooses a number of those same individuals to, to become his, part of his family, to, to, to become heirs to his own throne. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be saying it's not fair. I think what we'd be saying is, wow, this person is gracious. He's supposed to wipe us all off the planet. And yet, he makes us his own. Wow! That's the way it ought to be. And friends, we need to get back there. Where 
we praise God, not only for sending his son to die for us, but we praise him for his electing and predetermining grace. We praise him for that. When we think about what he did with respect to our salvation in eternity. Well, really, that brings me to the actual reason why this praise is happening. And yes, it is predestination. Yes, it is election. But the Apostle Paul is giving us the, what motivated God behind what he actually did. And it is his grace, his glorious grace. Back to our text. To the praise of his glorious grace. Now, uh, those three words, praise, glory, and grace, keep occurring almost like a chorus through this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says there, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So grace appears again there. And then verse 12 and 14, we read there, uh, so that, this is the end of the son's uh, section, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we've got praise again there, and then we also have glory coming through there. And then verse 14, who, this is the Holy Spirit, so this is the end of the Holy Spirit's work, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we've got praise and glory and grace sprinkled through this long paragraph. And it's deliberate because the Apostle Paul is basically saying that's where all this leads. It's not so much to our escaping hell and finding ourselves in heaven and going, we've survived. But it is that we might, as it were, lift up our hands and say, praise the Lord when we arrive in glory. Now, our text is summarized. And so let me put it to you the way it actually is. It is to the praise, that some of your versions have it that way, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And in that sense, if you knock off of his grace, you find it's exactly the same as verse 12 and verse 14. Okay, so then it becomes to the praise of the glory or his glory, and notice verse 12, to the praise of his glory, and notice verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So in a sense, it is this glory that is being spoken about. However, the Apostle Paul in this verse makes it clear that it's not just his glory generally, 
but it is that glory as it is exhibited in his grace. That's, that's the glory that is being thought about right through to the end. So although in the last two, he doesn't throw in the word grace, at the back of his mind, he already has it because we are capturing it in verse 6. And uh, it's worth underscoring again. What does he mean when he says to the praise of the glory of his grace? I think let's face it, the word glory is like oil in your palms. It's very difficult for you to finally, in concrete terms, define. By its very nature, it is indefinable. It's, it's, it's meant to, to add the sense of infinity to what you're talking about. It's, it's meant to, to sort of say to you, um, you know, when people are speaking about maybe someone who has produced a very, very good song, and the song is such that everybody is is excited about it, and therefore they are all downloading it and so on. They use the phrase, it was off the charts, off the charts. In other words, whatever the, the final um, level was on the charts, it actually went right through it. And, and so you, you, you cannot even right now talk about where it reached. It was off the charts. Or uh, sometimes we speak in terms of shooting through the roof, and all we are saying is that it's, yeah, it just went beyond our ability to, to be able to quantify. That's, that's the phrase glory. It, it's meant to, to bring out that aspect of wow, total amazement. Wow. That's the way it's meant to be. It's, it's beyond the highest point of the scale. Beyond the highest point. Um, our cars normally have like 200 kilometers an hour or maybe 220 kilometers an hour. We never reach it, okay? If you attempted to do so, most likely you are mad. But that's not the point I want to make. Uh, the point I want to make <laughs> is uh, let's, let's assume you didn't have fear, okay? And you are sitting next to a guy who's driving. And he goes right up to 220, whichever, is it 240 or 260? And you can tell from the engine that he's actually driving beyond that. Except your scale in front of you, that's where it reaches. Now, I know that you wouldn't be going, wow. You probably would be saying, I am coming home. <laughs> coming home to the... Uh, and so on. that would be your feeling. Uh, but capture the point here. That, because that's what Paul is saying. He's saying to the praise of his grace, a grace which is glorious, a grace which produces a wow in me, a grace which I, I just cannot quantify, a grace which is, reaches the highest point of the scale and goes beyond that point. That's really what he is talking about when he adds this phrase, glorious. 
And in a sense, it's what he says in verse 7. Let's quickly go to verse 7. When he says, according to the riches of his grace. That word riches there is actually simply a, a replacement of the word glory. In other words, his riches are infinite. And his grace is according to that infinite richness. That's what is given to us. And therefore, surely it should produce a note of praise in us. I, I can't imagine you saying anything else. It, it must say to you, wow, this is truly a most glorious uh, gift that God has been pleased to give to us. Again, brethren, that should come out of our investigation of what the Father has done in eternity. What the Father has done in eternity. And we, we don't meditate on it enough. That's the reason why the Father does not get the praises that are due to him. Because when we think about salvation, we almost always just begin with the cross, and then here I am, he saved me. He should have sent me to hell. Praise the Lord. But hey, hang on. Look at where it came from. That the Father elected you despite the full knowledge of what your sinful life was going to be. He chose you and predetermined that you would be an heir to his throne forever. He pinpointed what your end would be. That's an unsearchably rich grace. That's a glorious grace. That's a grace that blows your mind. That this holy, infinitely holy being should do a thing like that. But let's go on, finally, to the way in which he wraps up this phrase or this the end part of uh, what he's saying here. I was going to say this sentence, but he has just begun. This sentence continues to verse 14. So in the original, this is not the way he ends his sentence. It's in the English that uh, he ends the sentence this way. With which, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The phrase there is simply meaning that this rich grace has already been secured, secured in Christ Jesus. It's already secured. Now, the English phrase blessed here obscures a little bit, not completely, uh, what the Apostle Paul is, is really saying. The, the word that he uses here is, is more uh, in line with favored. So it really ought to be reading, with which he has favored us in the beloved. 
Okay, in other words, we have been distinguished from everybody else. We, we, we have received such a favor that makes us stand out from all else. Let me give you two verses in, in the book of Luke that uses the same word, but I want you to notice that it, it makes more sense to use the word favored instead of blessed. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 and verse 28. This is about uh, Angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And this is what Angel Gabriel says. And he came to her, Luke 1 and verse 28, and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. That word favored is exactly the word that the Apostle Paul uses in, um, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. Another one is uh, Luke 6. Luke 6 and verse 32. Luke 6 and verse 32. Here it is. If you love those who love you, what benefit? Now, that word benefit is the actual word we have in Ephesians 1. What benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, the, the, what Jesus was saying amounts to this. If you love those who love you, how will that work out in your favor on the last day? How will that work out in your favor? Because even sinners love those who love them. So how will it be in your favor? So the sense here is not merely blessing. It is a distinguishing blessing. It is one that separates you from everyone else to the point where they are looking at you and they are turning green with envy. Wow, look at him. He's been favored from the rest of us. That's the phrase that the Apostle Paul is using here. And as I said, yes, there's something of blessing, but it's easy for us to miss, as they say, the meaning through translation, we, we, we can easily lose it. And in this case, let's not lose it. Because the fact that the Apostle Paul uses the word blessed three times in verse 3. Three times! And the word that he was using there is the one that from which we normally use the word to eulogize. He now uses a different word in verse 6. It must be because he recognizes that the word that he has been using does not adequately reflect what he wants to say to us. And what he wants to say to us is this. That to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has favored us in the beloved. He has distinguished us from everybody else in the beloved. He, he, he's, he's come to us and, and, and so bestowed upon us his, his favor that everybody says, wow, 
Wow. And we too say the same thing. I have been eternally favored by God. I don't deserve it. But that's what he has done. Praise the Lord. That inevitably becomes the way in which I respond. And yet the point he's making is that that favor is secured in Christ. It is secured in Christ. Now, I need to hurry on, but I, I need to try and illustrate this so that we, we appreciate it. Notice he did not say in Christ. He didn't even say in him. He says in the beloved. Or, to put it a little differently, in the son he loves. In the beloved. Again, it's deliberate. Because the beloved is Jesus. And he could have easily said in Christ or through Christ. Why do I say so? Well, let's begin reading from verse 3. And you notice how he uses those different words. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. There it is. He uses it. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him. He could have said it again. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He could have again said that. According to the purpose of his will. But now, he says to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us or favored us in the beloved, in the son he loves. Paul, why are you making that change? Well, it's deliberate. You know, what has to happen is this. You're going through a trial. And I hear this from Christians a lot of times. And then they say, Pastor, what have I done that God should be allowing me to go through this? What have I done? Now, the logic amounts to something like this. If I haven't done something wrong, the Father should be blessing me rather than making me suffer. Now, the thing you need to learn to do as a Christian is remove yourself off the picture and put Christ there. Because the Father relates to you in Christ. Not in what you've done and not done. In Christ. It's his son who is put there. And because he loves the son, he then pours his love towards you. And once you capture that, it changes your whole scenario in life. When you're going through trial, you realize this is meant to bless me. Yes, it doesn't feel that way, but as James says in James chapter 1, it is meant to build your muscles, to build your capacity, to build your spirituality, to make your heaven even richer when you get there with your rewards. It changes the picture altogether. It's one way in which he is blessing you. Now, I just want to illustrate this, and I hope you'll appreciate this before I close. Um, 
the blessing is ours, yes, but it is ours in Christ. Jesus achieves it. And because he's achieved it on the cross, which we shall begin to see from verse 7 onwards, he has achieved it on the cross. What God determined in eternity would definitely be ours in time. And what we need to learn to do is to rejoice in that. It's in, because of the Father's affection towards the Son, we become the beneficiaries. A few years ago, uh, the, the president of Rwanda, or oh, I suppose it was the government of Rwanda, but of course the president was behind it all, um, so the, the, they, they decided that they were going to sponsor a football team in England. And the football team is uh, uh, Arsenal. And uh, everybody thought it was madness, complete madness, because, you know, Rwanda is a poor nation compared to England. How you should now be sending money from Rwanda over to, to, to England to support a football team, which was the president's favorite football team. But the argument was that if we can have a major team in the UK wearing on their T-shirt the phrase, visit Rwanda, we're going to get tourists. And that's exactly what happened. So here was a nation that's poor in Africa that was spending roughly 30 million pounds sponsoring a team in, in, in the UK. Within one year, they got more tourists from the UK visiting Rwanda that paid back that 30 million pounds. Why did those tourists go to Rwanda? Well, I'll tell you why. They were watching their favorite team play. And there was a favor that came to Rwanda through Arsenal. And so the money came in. So although there was a lot of accusation, and I think most of it is quite right, it paid off in the end through that team. And the nation benefited. This connection that people have is what is being brought out here. The love for this team oozes right through to this nation. Now we know this nation is there. Now we know that it is a tourist destination. Hey, let's go and see these elephants. And off they go. This connection, and let's not throw stones at either Rwanda or, or you know, Arsenal or England, but let's face it, we are also like that. When our national team, football team, in 2012 won the Africa Cup, I can assure you people were not shouting in the streets at they have won. That's not what they were saying. They were saying, we have won. Hey, we've won the cup, we've won the cup. You ask, okay, so did you do any training? 
<laughs> were you running across a pitch? Uh-uh. They were at home eating in Shima. But they are emotional when they are saying, we have won, we have won, we have won. What's the logic there? It's quite simple. It is we have won through our team. Victory. We have had the victory through our team. Now, how do believers fail to capture this? That my salvation is 100% secured. Praise the Lord. Hey, hang on. You haven't even reached heaven. Through the beloved. Stand. My father loves his son. His son has paid the price on Calvary. As he will be saying here in a few minutes, we have redemption through his death. We have it. It's done. The great transaction is done. I'm still here on earth. Yes, but I want to assure you, it's as good as though I've arrived in heaven. Why? Through the beloved. And therefore, I can rejoice as though it's all about me. Well, brethren, time is not with me. Let me quickly wrap up. If we are going to appreciate the unsearchable riches of Christ, we need to begin, as I keep saying, from eternity. From all eternity, our salvation is secured. And it's not primarily about us. It's primarily so that when we finally get to glory, we may sing praises to this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And remember, here we are speaking about the Father and the Father alone. Therefore, it makes sense that the Apostle Paul should have begun with the phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, despite being in a prison, in a dark prison, stinking prison, but is full of praise to God. The Father. He hasn't even come to the Son yet. The Father. May I suggest to you, brethren, that often it's our lack of appreciation of Christian doctrine that makes us and keeps us um, tied up with the circumstances of our lives. Failing to sleep, losing our appetite and everything else. Why? The circumstances around you. They pale into utter insignificance if we can only learn to drink in from the wells of salvation. And especially those strong doctrines such as election and predestination. They, they add stamina to our lives. They become ballast, as it were, an anchor to the soul so that in the midst of the storms of life, we remain stable. Why? We've anchored into eternity past and we've anchored into eternity future through these truths through these strong doctrines 
how two sermons will not help you in the heat of battle in the real world. How to be successful, how to be happy, how to, how to. They sell like ice cream on a hot day, but when the heat is on, they don't help us at all. It is these strong doctrines, when you understand them, that you can be in a stinking, hot, sweaty, dark prison cell. And your fellow prisoners are hearing you singing the praises of God. May God help us all to do just that. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God, as we said at the very beginning, Zambia, Africa, the world is going through very difficult times. In our own congregation here, we've lost two mothers in the last one month. We are affected, oh Lord. We are. Throw on that the political tension, not only from the electioneering, but also the period we're going through with respect to the counting of votes. Oh Lord, how easy it is for us to cause the things of God to pale into insignificance as we bite our nails concerning these situations. But Lord, even as we pray that you will preserve our lives and give us peace in the midst of all this, may the world be totally amazed and even shocked by the amount of praise that will escape our lips no matter what. And may that be because we have anchored deeply in the immensities and profundities of sovereign grace. Oh Lord, do this for each one of us, that the world might come to us asking why. And we can point them to the unsearchable riches of Christ, to the praise of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.